0: Good evening everyone and welcome to this year's St Anseline's Lecture. Um, It's great to see you here. For those who are staying on from the Church Society Conference, it's great to see you uh, sticking with it. I hope you've enjoyed tea this evening. And for those who are just joining us, you're very welcome. Uh, It's great for this uh, St Anseline's Lecture um, to to welcome you all. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the St Anseline's Lecture is a very old Puritan foundation. uh, Back in 1559 or so, at least, we know it started at least then, Uh, They used to ring the bell at St Antlin's Church in the centre of London, uh, which no longer exists, uh, but it did exist then. They used to ring the bell at 5am every morning um, until people got up and went to the church. And then they sang psalms for an hour in English in the church. And then they would have a lecture on the scripture for an hour. And then people were packed off to work around 7 we decided as the St. Angela's trustees just recently that we would change the time of the St. Angeline's mm-hmm. Lecture. So it's great that you can gather this evening at five in the afternoon, which is much more civilised, isn't it? So on behalf of the other trustees, myself, uh, Mark Burkill and William Taylor, it's good to welcome you. Our lecturer this evening um, is Donald John... Where is he? He's disappeared. Oh, Donald John Mc... Oh, I get this right, his, his name is spelled McLean, but you, you're never sure if it's McLean or McLean, so the way to remember it is, he's Insane McLean. He must be insane because he agreed to come and do this. Um, we've known each other many years, we both live in Cambridge. Uh, Donald is probably the best theologically educated insurance director in the entire country. Uh, He's not a full-time theologian, but he does have a PhD on 17th century theology. He's an elder at Cambridge Presbyterian Church, um, which is why we have to do quid pro quo, and I'm going to preach there in a few weeks' time. Uh, And he's also a, a trustee of the Banner of Truth. Um, I restrain myself from calling it the banana of truth, so I'm pleased by that. Well done. Um, So it's great to have you here. Thank you for coming. We are going to just uh, read um, from Ephesians chapter 4 as we begin our time together. I will pray. And then Donald John is going to introduce us this evening to a great Anglican, William Perkins, a great Cambridge Anglican, no less. So Ephesians chapter 4, we continue reading that. one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your words, the Bible. Thank you that you chose to reveal yourself And your ways to us in this book. We thank you, too, that you are the Lord of all, that you are the Lord of all history, all time, all space, and all people. We pray tonight as we look at some episodes from church history, at the doctrine of the church as it was taught by William Perkins, that you would open our minds to understand what Donald John has prepared for us to understand that you would thrill us with this doctrine, inspire us, correct us where needs be. We ask that you would uh, take and use what is uh, good and edifying from uh, the teaching of William Perkins to build us up in our most holy faith, that we might build the church in our day. For Jesus' greater glory. Amen. Let's welcome Donald John in the usual way.
1: Well, thank you for your kind invitation to give this lecture to Joy to be with you this evening. Uh, Lee and I first met about ten years ago at a conference on John Owen in Cambridge, and over the years in the small evangelical world that we inhabit, we've continued to bump into one another. Uh, With increasing frequency, as our daughters are in the same class in the same school these days. So, thank you especially to Lee for the invitation for this evening. Well, the subject before us is rather vast, taking in two large and controversial subjects. Ours is a true Church of God, William Perkins, and the Reformed Doctrine of the Church. Perkins himself. Uh, has been lauded on the one hand by J.I. Packer as the best known English international theologian of his generation, joining with John Calvin and Theodore Beza to form the Trinity of Orthodoxy. But on the other hand, William Perkins has been portrayed as the leading figure in the decline of Reformed theology from the vibrant pastures of the Reformation to the arid wastelands of reformed scholasticism. But if Perkins himself was a vast and debated subject, even more so is the reformed doctrine of the church. The great 17th century Genevan theologian Francis Turretin went so far as to say, scarcely any other among the controversies waged between us and our opponents in this miserable age seems to be of greater moment than the disputation concerning the nature of the church. No controversy for the Reformed was more important than the one concerning the church. Why? Does the doctrine of the church matter? Well, as has been said, when the divines argued about the church, they felt they were arguing about that which is closest to Christ and inseparable from him. Christ and the church were not two related ideas. Rather, in the eyes of these divines, they were one living reality. The doctrine of the church matters because the church is the bride of Christ and one, in that sense, with him. Two important and timely subjects then. Why do I say timely? Well, James Packer concluded his 1996 St. Anseline lecture on none other than William Perkins by saying, is there not an uncanny relevance for us in the thought about the Church of England that we have just found Perkins expressing? There was an uncanny relevance in what Perkins was saying 20 years ago, and that remains the case today. And as for the doctrine of the church, why does that matter? Well, as every year goes by, evangelicals, notwithstanding today's happy events, become more fragmented and divided. New denominations spring up, new divisions appear. And this trend, I am convinced, will only reverse when we return to a robust biblical definition of the national church to an ecclesiology which is not shot through with post-enlightenment individualism. As such, a key contention of this lecture will be that a reformed doctrine of the church, such as that articulated by Perkins, is a real need of the hour. Well then, In moving forward, we'll have a short biography of Perkins. Uh, As a Presbyterian, I can't help but take a short detour to Geneva and see Calvin's uh, views on the nature of the church. And then we'll spend most of the time on Perkins, showing how and why Perkins thought that the Church of England was a true church of God. So then, the life and times of William Perkins. Perkins. His life uh, very neatly spans the Elizabethan era. He's born 1558, the year that Elizabeth ascended to the throne, and he dies in 1602, shortly before the death of Elizabeth. And as such, uh, Perkins' life and thought is inevitably moulded by the political and ecclesiastical context of Elizabethan England. Elizabeth inherited a nation, recovering from the changes and the persecution which had arisen um, due to uh, the differences between the strong Protestantism of Edward VI, England's Josiah, and the Roman Catholicism of Mary I, Bloody Mary. Elizabeth, also in that difficult context, had to deal with the pressure from certain of the Marian exiles who were Agitating uh, for a church order more like the ones that they had seen in the continent, particularly in Geneva. There were pushes for further reform in liturgy in the area of clerical vestments and even pushes to change the entire government of uh, the Church of England in a Presbyterian direction. And some of the more extreme individuals in the Elizabethan context said, We are an England. So far off from having a church rightly reformed according to God's word that as yet we are not come to the outward face of the same. That was some of the context that Perkins ministered in and as we'll see it's so very interesting that Perkins, the father of Puritanism, never adopted that line of critique. He laboured instead all his days to vindicate the Church of England, as she was, as a true Reformed Church. Perkins is born in Warwickshire. Uh, We don't know much about his life until he appears in that great city of Cambridge at Christ's College in 1577. Quite how Perkins spends his student days is uh, a bit unknown. We do have anecdotes about, quote, drunken Perkins, and it's recounted that when he came to Cambridge, quickly the wild fire of his youth began to break out. It's not certain whether this was his own disposition or the bad company of others which betrayed him to these extravagancies. Clark, who sort of wrote the first mini-biography, notes that Perkins was very wild in his youth, but the Lord in mercy was pleased to reclaim him. And so at some point in his student days in Cambridge, Perkins is converted, his life is transformed. And Clark says of the converted Perkins, he was so pious and spotless that Malice was afraid to bite at his credit because she knew her teeth could not enter it. So pious and spotless. The very testimony surely that a Puritan life was aiming to elicit. Perkins graduated BA 1581, MA 1584, and upon his graduation takes up a fellowship at Christ College. He begins also to preach, uh, initially to the prisoners of the Castle Jail in Cambridge. And Clark recounts that they were brought out, fettered as they were, to hear Perkins preach, but that his preaching freed many of them from the captivity of sin which was their worst bondage. That same year, Perkins became lecturer at Great St Andrews and immediately becomes recognised as a powerful preacher. Clark notes his sermons were not so plain, but the piously learned did admire them, nor so learned, but that the plain did not understand them. Now Perkins' preaching developed through his ministry, it moved from an emphasis on wrath to an emphasis on grace. It's been observed in his sermons he used to pronounce the word damn with such an emphasis as it left a doleful echo in his auditors' ears a good while after. But in his old age he was more mild, often professing that to preach mercy is the proper office. Of ministers of the gospel. Perkins was a busy man as well as his preaching, his college fellowship, he fulfilled many other duties in the university. He was Dean of Christ's 1590 to 91. He catechized students at Corpus Christi on Thursday afternoons. He lectured on the Ten Commandments. On Sunday afternoons he worked as an advisor counseling the spiritually distressed. Because of all that he did, Perkins influenced many who passed through Cambridge. Richard Sibbs, John Cotton, John Preston, William Ames were all profoundly influenced by Perkins. Ames said, I gladly call to mind the time when being young I heard worthy Master Perkins. He so preached in a great assembly of students that he instructed them soundly in the truth, stirred them up to seek godliness and made them fit for the kingdom of God. Perkins wasn't simply busy in Cambridge. He was a scholar. He had an international repute. Clark, again, gives this enviable anecdote about Perkins. He had a rare felicity in the reading of books, as it were, but turning them over and would give then an exact account of all that was contained therein. He perused books so speedily that one would think he read nothing, and yet so accurately that one would think he read all. His theological learning uh, has rightly led him to be called easily the most preeminent English churchman and theologian of his remarkable generation. But despite his international stature as a theologian, his writings were very popular. Packer notes, no Puritan author except Richard Baxter ever sold better than Perkins. Packer tells us that Perkins' works were translated into nine languages, sadly not including the heavenly language of Scottish Gaelic. (laughs) The success of Perkins' writings really cemented his reputation and they do entitle him to be placed at the head of the movement of Puritanism in the 17th century. It's right that Perkins set the tone for the 17th century Puritan accent on reformed experiential truth and self-examination and their polemic against Rome and Arminianism. What of Perkins the man... What is he like? Well, as to Perkins' character, Clark, his biographer, tells us he was of a cheerful nature and pleasant disposition, somewhat reserved to strangers, but once acquainted, very familiar. So a nice man. But if that was his character, what about Perkins' physical appearance? This is a bit more amusing Perkins was of a ruddy complexion, fat and corpulent, lame of his right hand. Yet this Ehud, with his left-handed pen, did stab the Romish cause. Perkins married. Um, He had to then give up his fellowship at Christ's. couldn't be married and have a college fellowship. Wealthy supporters added to his income as lecturer in Great St Andrews. And his ministry there continued. Uh, He had uh, seven children in his seven years of marriage, three of whom died in infancy. And having served his whole career in Cambridge, Perkins himself died at the age of 44 in 1602. Now Perkins lived all his days as a faithful son of the Church of England. R.T. Kendall notes, but Perkins saw himself being in the mainstream of the Church of England, which he often defended. And Perkins, as far as can be ascertained, only had two real brushes with the authorities uh, throughout his career in Cambridge. One was in 1587, uh, where Perkins had to answer for a sermon preached in Christ's chapel, in which it is alleged that he was critical of kneeling for reception facing east, and the practice of the minister administering the communion elements to himself. Perkins was, however, able to acquit himself of any censure, and all he had to say was that he might have spoken at a more convenient time. Perkins was also alleged to be on the fringes of a shadowy Presbyterian movement in and around Cambridge, could didn't possibly comment on any, any of them. Um, but uh, he was um, sort of hauled before uh, the authorities, questioned under oath, and Perkins protested that he did not know anything about quasi-Presbyterian meetings. He did not know any ministers that met to purpose to conclude debate or order how Presbyterian discipline might be advanced. And so that too passed over without any real censure. And so his life shows us that it's right to conclude, as one has done, that in Perkins' day he was regarded as authentically Anglican, as someone like Hooker, insofar as the term Anglican had any meaning in the Elizabethan Church. And Packer helpfully summarises Perkins' life and says that Perkins was content to bear with ecclesiastical inconvenience for the time being in order to fulfill in the Church of England a full-scale soul-saving ministry. Throughout his life, he remained a devoted defender of the essential doctrines and liturgical practices of the Church of England. So that's Perkins' life, very briefly, a life lived in service, really, Of the established church. But some context on the reformed doctrine of the church. Constraints of time mean that uh, only the views of John Calvin will be considered. The published version will have so much more, uh, but for now, uh, just John Calvin. Calvin, uh, in his doctrine of the church, distinguished between the visible and invisible church. Uh, Calvin noted that the church could be taken to mean those who are the children of God by the grace of adoption, i.e. the church is the church of the saved, the elect. But Calvin said that this church is invisible to us, visible to the eyes of God alone. By contrast, for Calvin, we have to do with the visible church which is designated the whole multitude of men spread over the earth who profess to worship one God by Christ. And as such, in the visible church, the church with which we have to do, in this church are mingled many hypocrites who have nothing of Christ but the name and outward appearance. The visible church, the church with which we have to do, is by necessity a mixed church church but despite this mixed condition of the church it is possible for calvin to identify a true visible church by two marks the word of god purely preached and the sacraments administered according to christ's institution for calvin where these two things are present it is not to be doubted a church of god exists and Calvin regarded the visible church of God exceptionally highly. He states, "It is not sorry, it is now our intention to discuss the visible church. Let us learn from the simple title, "Mother," how necessary it is that we should know her. There is no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceives us in her womb, gives us birth, nourishes us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keeps us under her care and guidance, until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. The visible church is our mother, without whom we have no life. And as such, Calvin was resolutely opposed to leaving a true church, arguing how deadly a temptation it is when one is prompted to withdraw from a congregation wherein are seen the signs and tokens with which the Lord has marked his church. Calvin even argued that where some faults may creep into the administration of doctrine or sacraments, this ought not to estrange us from communion with the church. He distinguished between fundamental articles, e.g. the Trinity, and other articles of doctrine which may be disputed, which do not break the unity of the faith. Calvin warned against overzealousness regarding doctrine disrupting the unity of the visible church. He was even more insistent that failures in church discipline should never divide churches. He criticised those who, when they do not see a quality of life corresponding to the doctrine of the gospel amongst those to whom it is announced, they immediately judge that no church exists in that place. Calvin argued that they are vainly seeking a church, besmirched with no blemish. More could be said, but to summarise, Calvin and he really is representative of Reformed doctrine, had a high, high view of the visible church. He recognised that the visible church would always have failings, but these did not warrant schism, as long as the fundamentals of sound doctrine are maintained. And the teaching of the 39 articles is in line with that of Calvin. They state that the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance. So, on to Perkins and his doctrine of the church. Perkins, like Calvin, defines the church in terms of invisible and visible. The pure, invisible church. Is known only to God and the true visible church is known by certain marks of faithfulness. Taking Jude 1 as a starting point called sanctified by God the Father preserved in Jesus Christ Perkins says this is a definition of the militant Catholic Church and for Perkins this church consists of the number of believers dispersed through the face of the whole world who are effectually called, sanctified, and reserved unto life everlasting. That is for Perkins, this church consists of only the elect, such as are chosen unto life everlasting. The church of the firstborn, Hebrews twelve twenty-three. This church of the elect is one across time, Old and New Testament, one across locations, different nations, and one across earth, church militant, and in heaven, church triumphant. But again, Perkins says that this church, this perfect church, is unknown and unknowable to us. For Christ, he only knows them, who and where they be, through the face of the whole earth. And so leaving to one side this invisible church, how does Perkins identify a true, visible church with which we have to do and with which we have to identify ourselves? Well, Perkins says that as we may know whether a man is a true apostle or not, by the same gift, we may discern the state of any particular church. Now, for Perkins, we don't do this with the marks that the Roman church used, antiquity, apostolic succession, numbers. Rather, for Perkins, a true, visible church is known by fidelity to the doctrine of the prophets and apostles, obedience thereto, proceeding forward in sanctification. With this mark for Perkins, the doctrine of the prophets and the apostles, we can have confidence that a particular church belongs to the true, visible church. Perkins says, The doctrine taught by the apostles concerning Christ is made the foundation of the church. And look, where this doctrine is rightly held and confessed, there is an infallible note of the true church. Perkins here isn't assuming that there would be doctrinal uniformity in a church, just agreement in the essential articles of the faith. Perkins says, Men differ in sundry opinions in the true church of God, yet they all agree in the articles of faith. Their differences are in matters beside the foundation as well as doctrine, true administration of the sacraments is also a mark for Perkins of the true visible church. He says regarding baptism, the lawful use thereof is a note whereby the true church of God is discerned and distinguished from the false church. Combining sacraments and apostolic doctrine, Perkins says quite beautifully, God's true church on earth, where his word is freely known and preached and his holy sacraments duly administered, let us associate ourselves to this church. This church is the suburbs of heaven. And so dwelling there, we shall be ready to enter into the glorious city itself when the Lord calls us. Doctrine, sacraments, church discipline was also important. Perkins said men should not be admitted hand over head to the Lord's table. Scandalous persons ought to be restrained. The power of discipline, the power of the keys, and faithful use of these keys meant that, quote, the word and sacraments are preserved from pollution. The souls of men are pulled out of the snares of the devil. If discipline be taken away, There will be no difference left between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. And so exercising the power of the keys, the power of discipline, was for Perkins a mark of the state of a true church. So for Perkins, three ways, three marks to identify a true church. But the marks are not equal. Where church discipline is lacking, where sin is tolerated, this does not vitiate the existence of the true church. Perkins explicitly says that even if the sacraments, even if church discipline are lacking, so be it. As long as there be preaching of the word with obedience in the people, there is for substance a true church of God. So how does Perkins apply these three marks? Apostolic doctrine, sacraments, discipline to the National Church of England. How did she fare when measured by this standard? Well, Perkins says that the Church of England of his day we may know to be the true visible church of God. Now Perkins knew that many in his day were um, denying this, particularly the the separatists, uh, most famous being Robert Brown. And the separatists said of the Church of England, It is no church of God, therefore there are no true ministers, true preaching, or right administration of the sacraments in it. And Perkins lamented that sundry men do separate themselves from our church as being no true member of the Church of God. Perkins dismissed these accusations. He proved that ours is a true church of God by the fact that the churches of Germany, France, Scotland and Italy, these churches that have received the gospel and are themselves the churches of God, give the right hand of fellowship to us and reverence our church as the church of God. And the testimony of these churches for Perkins was of more weight than the opinion of a few private men. And so for him, the Church of England stood as the true Church of God. He complained, Great, therefore, is the rashness and want of moderation in many that condemn our church for no church. Perkins said, No man ought to sever himself from the Church of England For some wants that be therein. So long as we hold Christ, no man ought to sever himself from our church. Perkins said, look, the Church of England embraces apostolic teaching and therefore possesses the mark of a true church. He said, the doctrine touching Christ, held and received in our churches, Is confirmed by the testimonies of the prophets and apostles, and therefore, for substance, our doctrine is theirs. He further argued that the doctrine of the Church of England agreed with the early church. For the ground and foundation of religion, our churches agree with the churches after Christ, which continued for the space of 600 years. For we do not only allow the Apostles' Creed, but the four general councils and their confessions and creeds. And if anyone challenged this, Perkins said, the book of the Articles of Faith agreed to in open Parliament would fully show his case. He believed that our English Confession, the Articles of Religion established in the Church of England, contained the foundations of the Christian religion allowed and held by all evangelical churches. Because of this, Perkins said, there is just cause our church should be reputed the true church of God and a good member of his Catholic church. Perkins also defended the worship of the Church of England, obviously a matter of significant dispute in Elizabethan England, he considered the statement, it may be said that the church of the Protestants observes holy days. He noted some churches do not, principally the church in Scotland. They say the church in the apostles' days had no holy day besides the Lord's Day. In contrast to this strictness, Perkins notes, the Church of England observes holy days, but the popish superstition is cut off. For we are not bound in conscience to the observance of these days, neither do we place holiness or worship in them, but we keep them only for order's sake, that men may come to the church to hear God's word. Even if it was argued that the government and worship of the Church of England was not as it should be, that say it should be more closely aligned to Genevan ideals. Perkins says even if you grant that it is no grounds for separation. Those who argued the Church of England to be no church because it maintains not that outward order they think it should be in, they were mistaken to separate. Because even if the government and worship of the church was in error, they do not touch the foundation of what makes a true church. Perkins says, Though we may prefer church before church, yet we must not condemn a church to be no church for some corruptions that be therein. A true brother may have some blemishes, And a true church may have some wants. Now Perkins, as we've seen, defended the Church of England. But he acknowledged that it was a mixed church. He bewailed, alas, how many thousand we have in our church who know no more religion than they hear in the common talk of all men. And which is worst of all, Whereas they might have more knowledge, they will not, but care not for it. So while he criticised those who separated from the Church of England, he acknowledged its failures. He said, For us in England, the case undoubtedly stands thus. Our church is doubtless God's cornfield. We are the corn heap of God. And those brownists and sectaries are blinded and besotted who cannot see that the Church of England is a goodly heap of God's corn. But with all we must confess, we are full of chaff, that is, of profane and wicked hypocrites. Many of our best professors to give themselves too much liberty and too many sins but still while he acknowledged its faults Perkins was proud of the Church of England look he said at the outward face of our church at the signs of God's love which are among us at God's dealings with us and behold we are a most beautiful church a glorious nation. How you got a Scotsman to say that? I don't know. (laughs) So it's right to say that loyalty to the established system was integral to the Christianity that Perkins taught. But it is possible for a true church of Jesus Christ to cease to be a church. After all, Perkins was not in the Church of Rome. And so we had to explain on what basis a church can be judged no longer a true, visible church. And Perkins faced into that question uh, in his commentary on Galatians. And he gives there three rules to enable judgment on whether a church is still worthy of that title. Perkins first in his rules was insistent that if the faults of the church be in manners, and these faults appear in both the lives of ministers and people, so the ministers are not living well, the people are not living well, Perkins said, so long as true religion is taught, it is a church. And Perkins' point is that bad living of people or ministers do not give grounds for separation from a church. Moving on from practice to doctrine, Perkins said that if a church is erring in doctrine, the next rule is to consider whether a church errs in the foundation or not. If the error in the church is not in the foundation of religion, then, quote, Paul has given the sentence that they which build on the foundation hay and stubble of erroneous doctrine may still be saved. A church, therefore, may have many doctrinal errors before we would be allowed to separate from it. Perkins gives some examples. He says, doctrinal errors which do not affect the foundation, for example, When a Lutheran shall hold that images are still to be retained in the church. When a Lutheran shall maintain that there is a universal election of all men. For these and such like opinions may be maintained with the foundation of salvation unraised. By contrast, foundational truths are the denial of the death of Christ, the denial of the immortality of the soul, affirmation of justification by works and the like. The sum of these fundamental points is comprised in the Creed of the Apostles and the Decalogue. So we can't judge a church to be no true church if it's just failures in living. We can't judge it to be no true church if its doctrinal errors are besides the foundation. But if the errors are in the foundation, what then do we do? Well, Perkins' third rule was inquiry must be made whether the church err of human frailty or of obstinacy. And Perkins' view here is that it's possible for a church to err even in the fundamentals and still be a church as long as that error is correctable. However, if a church shall err in the foundation openly and obstinately, it separates from Christ and ceases to be a church. Then, and only then, we may separate from it and give judgment that it is no church. Perkins notes the churches of Galatia had erred in the foundation, being fallen from justification by the obedience of Christ. But he notes that Paul yet called them churches still because he had only now begun in this epistle to admonish with them. So even when there is an error in the foundation before a church is deemed no true church, significant time must be given For remedying the error. And against this background, it's almost impossible to overstate how reticent Perkins is to separate from a church. He looked to the example of Jesus. He noted the church of the Jews was exceedingly corrupt. He pointed out that the scribes and Pharisees, doctors of that church, erred in fundamental points of doctrine, teaching justification by works. And yet for all this, Christ did not separate from that church, nor did he teach his disciples to do so. Even more astonishingly, Perkins argued, when the Jews had crucified the Lord of life, when the Jews crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, Perkins says, they remained a church. The apostles acknowledged that the covenant and promises still belonged to men and to them, and they never made any separation from the synagogues till such time as the Jews had been sufficiently convicted by the apostolic ministry that Christ was the true Messiah. Ponder that as the reformed doctrine of the Church even those who were guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory, even they did not immediately cease to be a church. Well, well, why were Perkins' standards so high in regard to separating from the visible church? Well, because Perkins himself says, we must remember that shut out of the church there is no salvation. None can be saved ordinarily from condemnation that are out of the church. For in the church is God's covenant of grace with the sacraments and seals thereof. As such, every man must be admonished evermore to join himself. some particular church being a sound member of the Catholic Church what then shall we say to these things what Perkins doctrine of the church, his defence of the Church of England, his radical opposition to separation from it, what does that mean for us today well principally I think it calls us to have a much higher view of the unity of the visible church than we do. It calls us to have a much higher threshold before we consider leaving a denomination than we do. On a personal basis today, Christians move denominations, churches, for all kinds of reasons. Better provision of children's work, a different aesthetic of worship a different philosophy of ministry or vision. Perkins could not, would not comprehend such a thought process. If the word is preached in accordance with apostolic doctrine, we have no grounds to leave a church. And there's also a corporate dimension to this. My ecclesiastical connections have always been outside of national churches, both in Scotland and in England, but I'm very deeply conscious that the fortunes of evangelicals in our national churches do so much to determine the spiritual climate of the nation. And it's been a deep grief to watch, especially in Scotland, the fragmenting of evangelical witnesses, Evangelicals have responded so differently to the challenges of the day. So often each one doing their own thing. Ministers leaving one by one. Congregations dividing. And in an imperfect world that's maybe inevitable but it's nonetheless deeply, deeply sad. And we do live in a world where the church is drifting further and further from It's moorings, an age when the distance between apostolic teaching and the teaching of our established churches is becoming wider and wider. And perhaps differing responses, differing judgments are hard to avoid. But Perkins calls us to a better, united way. Perhaps even a way shown by the recent unity of Anglican evangelicals in the church society. Perkins undoubtedly raises the bar on when a church ceases to be a church of Christ. He calls us to stay much longer than our natural inclination might be. He calls us to stay and to labour for recovery. But above all, Perkins, I think, calls us to act together. There may come a time when our national churches cease to be, in any meaningful sense, churches of Christ. That day may be near, that day may be far, and our prayer surely is that day never comes. But if we act together, Perkins' doctrine of the church would say to us, then the witness of evangelicals, the true church of Jesus Christ, will emerge stronger whatever happens on the larger scene but if we act as individuals well we'll just find ourselves on our own Perkins high view of the visible church and its unity calls us to stand together and if we must fall it calls us to fall together stay there, just for a few minutes
2: uh, we just have five minutes opportunity for questions uh, I should of course make clear that in due course the uh, this lecture will be published uh, people will be able to find out on various websites in due course about that, but quickly a few questions, I mean, much raised by Donald John here about Perkins any questions? I've got one okay um, he would often often was talking about uh, national churches. Mm-hmm. Can, can you explain anything about how you would relate national churches to local churches and so on because that is perhaps something also which we particularly think about today
1: Yes so I mean the context is very different yeah back then the, the concept of a church that isn't one and by one united under yeah. under sort of the, the Pope, yeah. Even that is a radically difficult concept for these guys to get their heads around. They've then sort of moved into a concept where the church is the nation, the nation is the church. A concept of different true churches side by side, Mm. that that doesn't exist as a concept. That's just not in in their orbit. So the concept of true local churches not united together in one form of government in a nation is, is something they wouldn't okay, so comprehend. So in the, help us there. No, no, not not particularly. So they are very much thinking on the national the national. But you scale. Presumably
2: did think of this in relation to those Brownists mm. particular ministers, he could recognise that something had gone wrong mm-hmm. with them.
1: Yeah. Oh, the sort of the. He, he was very anti the Anabaptists, separatists. I mean, he would say that they were no true church of Jesus Christ, is what he would say. And he explicitly says that. Okay. Rod?
2: Um, you gave some examples of what the foundational truths were to faith, But I, I, I didn't hear you saying what defined a foundational
1: say a little more about that? That is is the rub of of some of this where where the rubber hits the road. So Perkins would say on the one hand the foundational truths for him were effectively the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments. However, it's not that simple. So he has to face into the question of, well, the Church of Rome accepts the Apostles' Creed and it accepts the Ten Commandments and yet you're saying it's right to separate from Rome you're saying that the Church of Rome has true baptism, and yet you're separating from the Church of Rome. What is going on? So, in theory, it's very simple for Perkins. It's the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments. They define the foundation. Then you get into this, well, okay, the Church of Rome holds both of them, but in practice, they don't really want to abide by any of the Ten Commandments. And he's got a a section in one of his, his writings where he goes through them one by one, saying Rome doesn't hold to any of the Ten and the Apostles' Creed, where he says, well, actually, they profess it, but they don't hold to any of it in practice. So, in theory, it's easy to define the fundamental doctrines. In practice, it's very difficult to apply it to any individual, nation, church, whatever. It's, I mean, it's not straightforward. But practice is okay.
2: Andrew, did you... You mentioned that the Church of Rome is no longer a valid church. Let's say
0: when that
1: happened was it really early in the early church, or later in the medieval period when it stopped being a valid church? Um, per- Perkins hedges his bets on, on on the Church of Rome. So, in sort of in, in in the written version of this, there, there's a section on on the Church of Rome where where I begin by saying, "Is Rome a true church?" Perkins says yes and no but more accurately, no and yes. So so what what he says is that what is distinctive about Rome is anti-Christian and no part of the, the Church of Christ. But there is still today and always was in the Church of Rome the true Church of Jesus Christ. And because she has some true believers in her, there is a sense in which she was and a sense in which she remains the Church of Christ, hence her baptism is valid as opposed to you know, sects which deny the Trinity whose baptism, they were no true Church of Christ. So it, it's difficult. So Perkins would say our roots go right back in continuity to, to the Catholic Church, which is we have cleared away the, the chaff that kind of grew up more and more while the wheat was hidden under it. That help but it's really kind of Trent which have codifies and ultimately changes things because then they've got something where they can say here here's what you've written down here's when you've anathematized the gospel and here's where you've codified it all going wrong mm.
2: okay right can we get can we thank don John very much indeed thank you, thank you. We we look forward to seeing the printed version, having it available. I'm going to close it in prayer now.
1: Heavenly Father, we
2: thank you for saints that have gone before us and thought deeply about some of the matters which trouble us. Thank you for Donald John's uh, explanation, exposition of Perkins uh, uh, to us tonight. Lord, we pray that you would continue to give us wisdom as we seek to face the challenges of today uh, with the resources of first of all the scriptures, but then also those who have delved deep into those scriptures. And we pray for this so that Jesus Christ may be glorified amongst us
1: today. Amen. Amen. If I could just be permitted to say, I get no commission for this, um, but the, the works of William Perkins are currently being reprinted in some nice hardback editions. I think volumes one through five are out of projected ten volumes. So, if you want to read for yourselves what uh, J.I. Packer's words, an Anglican to remember, was it? Is that Panna? It's Reformation Heritage it's, Books. It's okay. So, do okay. dig them out and read Perkins for yourselves.
2: Thanks, everyone.